The reading this morning is from Mark, chapter 15, verses 16 through 34. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloth, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from there the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sakbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of the Lord. We give you thanks, Father, for your word and... um, We pray that by your spirit you would help us to be people who don't just hear it, but people who receive it and who are transformed by it. That's what we really want. And so um, we trust you with that good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you might remember that we started uh, 2023 off looking at the Gospel of John, and we ended up talking a lot about desire and how Jesus... Um, is the one to meet our deep desires. And um, I shared something with you that Andy Crouch says, and I want to remind you of it now. He says that recognition is the first human quest. Do some of you remember that? Andy Crouch says recognition is the first human quest. And he he points out that when an infant is born, uh, there's usually crying, but then there's what the doctors call quiet alert. And so the newborn, you know, it can't see very well. Its eyes can only focus like eight to ten inches away, but uh, its its eyes are wide open and it's calm and it's searching for a face. And isn't that like just fascinating? Like if you've seen an infant, you've seen them do that, and just to know that you, when you were born, uh, like 
that was what you did. Right off the bat, you started looking for a face that was looking at you. You were searching for someone searching for you, someone who would know you, someone who would love you, someone who would care for you. Not finding that face can be traumatizing. Uh, we have some psychologists in the room, and I know, I know that none of the psychologists in the room would ever do this, but I was reading a book recently, and it's a book by um, David Brooks, who some of you are familiar with, and he writes this, psychologists sometimes conduct still face experiments in which they tell mothers not to respond to their babies. Oh, what a horrible thing. When the babies send out bids for attention and love, the mothers are supposed to just sit there expressionless with a still face. At first, the babies squirm and, aren't, and are uncomfortable. Then they cry in frustration, and then they collapse in misery. It is an existential crisis. If a baby goes unseen by their caretaker for long periods of time, it can leave lasting emotional and spiritual damage. <laughs> the psychologists. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, like, it's like from the very first moments, uh, we're learning to answer questions like, am I safe? Am I secure? Am I cared for? Will I be loved? From the very first moments, we're learning answers to those questions. And when we look for the face but don't find it, when we don't see the one who sees us, the result is suffering. It is suffering, and, and maybe the worst kind, maybe the kind that most threatens hope. This is the second Sunday of Advent. It's a season in the church's life where we're both remembering Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, and we're also longing for his return, his last Advent. Um, we, we've spent some time in this series on hope, longing for his return, talking about his second coming, but now let's remember his first coming together. Uh, one thing that scripture makes really clear, and, and you all know this, is that Jesus lived a life full of suffering, full of suffering, right? Like from the very beginning, even before his birth, you remember his parents were on the run. They were fleeing under the threat of death from King Herod. And when he was born, he was born into extreme poverty. His first cradle was a feeding trough for animals. Um, as he grew older and began his ministry, it was carried out under like fierce opposition from the religious leaders of his day. Uh, we know that Jesus was like constantly on the move. He says that son of man, referring to himself, has no place to lay his head. His friends and family, they didn't really know what to do with him. It's like he was always kind of an outsider and a little bit estranged from them. He lived this life of deep sorrow and grief. I mean, think of him weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus or weeping over the city that he loved. His, his ministry with others, it, it was a ministry of like humble, self-giving love, but it was always putting him into close contact with human misery and sin. And so he really was a man of sorrows. And in the face of all that suffering, Jesus was also a man of really confident, humble hope. How did hope form for Jesus? Um, the psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, he says that hope is something that is formed. It is formed. And that it starts to form in us from those very first moments of us starting to search for a face that is searching for us. Um, he draws from a, a theory called attachment theory, and he says that it's having experiences of feeling seen 
and soothed and safe and secure and, and having those experiences, like not least in the face of um, really difficult situations, not least when we're suffering, it's having those experiences that allow us to start to form hope in the face of suffering. And he says that this has to happen in relationship with others. He writes, the early construction of hope and our eventual capacity to endure suffering must be grounded in real relationships, ones that begin with our primary attachment figures. Uh, usually that's a, a mother, a father. And then after that, extend to God as we encounter him. Relationships that we sense in our embodied experience. And, and so for hope to form in the face of suffering, uh, feeling seen, soothed, safe, secure, it can't just, it can't be theoretical. See, it has to, it has to find reality in relationships. Um, and, and I wonder if maybe hope began to form for Jesus in the same way Kurt Thompson says it forms for you and for me. Like, and in through his suffering, he had relationships in which he really did feel known and loved. He learned how to process his suffering in the context of those secure relationships. And so, like, we know that he had a mother who... Um, looked forward expectantly to his birth and then welcomed him into the world with a lot of love and cared for him and loved him. He had early embodied relational experiences of being seen and soothed and safe and secure. And we don't know much about Jesus' childhood, like scripture just doesn't give us a lot of info, but the little we do know suggests that pretty early on, Jesus began to relate to God, like the God of Israel, um, as his heavenly father. You remember that? Uh, and so you remember the story of Jesus uh, when his family visits Jerusalem and he's 12 years old and, and Mary and Joseph just completely lose track of him. So maybe so much for being seen and, and secure and safe. But, but, uh, but Jesus was secure, wasn't he? Because where was he? He was in the temple. And when his parents found him, he wasn't panicked and he wasn't worrying. Uh, he said, why were you looking for me? You remember this? He said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And, and so from a pretty early age, it looks like Jesus' uh, attachment was shifting from his parents to God. Uh, the, the face he saw was not primarily his mother's face, and it wasn't Joseph's. It wasn't any of his friends or siblings. Like, it was his heavenly father's. And he found it. He found it. You remember uh, the remarkable account of Jesus' baptism when we're told that the heavens open and the spirit descends on Jesus and he hears the father's voice saying, ah, this is my son whom I love. Like, this is my beloved. This is my beloved. Um, in Mark, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see, family, we're all looking for someone looking for us. Um, recognition really is the first human quest. And at his baptism, Jesus receives like all the recognition anyone could ever want. I mean, Im imagine the heavens parting, the spirit descending on you, and you hear the voice, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And with that affirmation of belovedness, uh, Jesus just moves forward able to face anything with hope, even suffering. I mean, immediately after his baptism, in, in Mark's gospel, the way Mark puts this is so striking. Like, he's baptized, and then you're, you remember what happens? Immediately, 
we read that the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness, and there he faces satanic attack for 40 days. And that just messes with our intuitions, doesn't it? Because we tend to think that the more God loves us, the less we're going to suffer. But in just like one verse, Mark moves from the Father's affirmation of Jesus' belovedness to the Spirit casting Jesus out into the wilderness where he does suffer. And Jesus keeps facing suffering throughout his life, but he also keeps facing God. He stays facing his Father in heaven. Um, like he, he lives his life in the face of suffering, just clinging and entrusting to the reality that he is beloved, that he is seen and known and safe and secure because he has a Father in heaven who loves him. Um, I wonder, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? Do you have that kind of trust in God's love for you in the face of suffering? Do you know how to bring your suffering to God and to process it with God uh, with a sense of being seen and loved and cared for? Sometimes, maybe, but sometimes probably not. In fact, so often our experiences of suffering include feelings of profound doubt about God's love, feelings of being closed off from God entirely. Um, sometimes that sense of God's absence can feel like the worst part of our suffering. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis, he's, he's wrestling with just the heartbreaking sadness of of losing his wife, Joy, just four years after they were married. And he writes this. He says, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? He goes on to say, why is God so present in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? See, family, if, if recognition is the first human quest, and it's, then, then it's one thing to run to God in our suffering and have the heavens open and the spirit descend and the voice of the Father just affirm our belovedness. It's another to run to God in our time of need and to find him entirely absent, to find the door closed with no answer. Like, what happens when there's no sense of being seen and soothed and safe and secure? Uh, is there hope for this kind of suffering? One of the earliest theological mistakes the church had to confront was the notion that God only appeared to be human. He only appeared to be human. The notion was that God could never or would never uh, actually become human because that would mean that God suffers. And if God suffers, well, that means that God changes, and no one wants a God who changes, a God who suffers, that would taint God's essence. And so 
um, there has to be some kind of difference between Jesus and God. I mean, certainly at the end, at least, God must pull back and withdraw from Jesus because we can't say that what's happening to Jesus at the end is happening to God because uh, it's, it's just too horrible. Like, what would it even mean to say that? But the church, the church insists, no, the incarnation is a reality, and it's not a reality that just goes on pause every time Jesus is uncomfortable or every time that Jesus suffers, and it's certainly not a reality that stops on the cross. Which makes the passage that Debbie read for us extraordinary. Like, it's, it is a holy mystery. It tells us clearly enough that Jesus faced extreme suffering, like the beatings, the mocking, the ceaseless derision and scorn. But all of that pales in comparison to what we see at the end. Uh, recognition is the first human quest, and here at the end, Jesus is searching, and he's finding silence. Like he has no sense of the face. There's no voice affirming his belovedness. He feels utterly forsaken by God. And, and you see, family, what that means is that um, like God himself knows exactly what it feels like to be forsaken by God. And not in like a theoretical, abstract way. He knows it experientially. As, as the human being Jesus, God himself has experienced the dark despair of suffering and dying with no sense of God's presence. And that gives me hope uh, that even when I feel like C.S. Lewis did, like I'm knocking on a closed door and finding no answer, like God is far away or altogether absent, that, that even in those really dark moments uh, um, that are on the edge of despair, that even there, God is with me. Um, like, God has made even that darkest of dark human experiences his own. Like, he really is God for us in the deepest, darkest places of our misery and woe. And I wonder, family, like, where are you suffering? I look out at this room, and gosh, I see a lot of, a lot of stories of suffering. And they're all different, they're all unique, but like, there's not one of us who isn't suffering in one way or another. I wonder, what does it look like for you right now? For some of you, it's in the face of pain and illness, cancer, migraines, some kind of chronic physical battle that just it doesn't let up, it's relentless. See, right there, in that place, God is with you. God is with you. For some of us, it's in the, in the face of grief, like we've lost a dream or we've lost a job or we've lost someone we love. Um, uh, some of us recently have lost beloved pets. We've lost parents, we've lost friends, and right there, right there in that place, God is with you. He's with you. Uh, in, the, in the face of brokenness, the end of a friendship, the failure of a marriage, the overwhelming sorrow of just un, uh, of like relational unraveling, like right there, God is with you. In the face of temptation, a battle with a behavior you feel just 
utterly powerless to change or an attitude that just seems to have you in its grip and you feel trapped, like there's no way out. Well, right there, God is with you. In the face of all your guilt, all your shame, all your regret, God is with you there. Um, The God we know in Jesus Christ is a God who knows what it is to suffer. Um, And he knows even what it is to suffer alone. I mean, he knows what it is to seek the face, to be desperate for the face, to want nothing more than the heavens to part and the spirit to descend and the voice to affirm uh, his belovedness and to find only silence. He knows what it is to suffer alone. And I wonder, like, what would it look like for you to trust that in the deepest place of your suffering, that right there God is with you? God's there in the dark, dark depths. And if the deepest place of your suffering happens to be an overwhelming sense of God's absence, well, God's right there too. God's right there too. Because this is the one who knows the God-forsakenness of the cross. So there's hope, maybe, in the fact that God has gone to the depths of our human suffering. I find hope in that. But Christians have always wanted to say more than this. Like, because you could just stop there and say, well, yeah, the cross is amazing because it's just like this extreme act of God's self-identification with us. It's, it's kind of like um, the ultimate empathy, which is great. That's good and it's true. Um, but Christians have always wanted to say more. That the cross isn't just an act of identification with us, that God doesn't merely share our suffering, that on the cross he's, he's working rescue. He's working rescue, like he's, he's actually saving us. Um, we get a clue to the meaning of what's going on in verse 17 of our passage. Uh, we read that twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And you might just skip over that and think, well, that's really cruel. And it is. And and. Like, the Roman soldiers probably had no idea what they were doing. I mean, they, but they did it. They shoved this crown of thorns on Jesus' head. But, but in there, I mean, it, just take a moment to marvel at the sovereignty of God. Like, here are these Romans who haven't read their Old Testament. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to make fun of Jesus. And so they shove a crown of thorns on his head. But you remember in Genesis 3, like after humanity has rejected God's grace and we've rebelled against his love, we read this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring out. Like from the very beginning of the Bible story, thorns are a sign of the cursedness of the fall. And on the cross, like, Jesus is crowned with them. He's bearing them in a literal way. Uh, He's taking them upon himself. And and so I don't know like how this works out in a, um, I don't know how the cross saves us. And and neither do you. (laughs) Um, But, but the, the point isn't so much how it happens. The point and what Christians have always just wanted to say is, look, it happens. It happens. Like, we, we believe that it's happening here. 
um, that somehow God as Jesus makes himself vulnerable and he takes onto himself and into himself like all of the sin of the world and all of its tragic consequences in a way that sets us free, in a way that takes the burden off of us and puts it onto him. Francis Spufford, he reflects on this so poignantly. He, he retells the story of this passage that Debbie read, and he writes this. On the cross, Jesus is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it, and he claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying. And he embraces it with all that is left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory. Jesus says, this is mine now. But there is so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger. So much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him around and drags him down. Because this is not a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not some supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love going where we all go, all of us, when we end. Jesus is past trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He is traveling into the limit himself, now deeper and deeper. And the limits are tightening in on him, tightening down, to a rib cage that won't fill, tightening on him as consequences tighten on anyone. He's gone to the place our sorrows lead to at their worst. Guilt's dead end, panic's no exit loop, despair's junkyard where everything is busted. The Apostle Paul says it a lot more succinctly. He just says that the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And the for us is important. I mean, this is the Lord's love for you and for me. Like he really has gone down to the depths for us. It's not just an act of identification. It's an act of rescue. And what that means, family, is that your sin is no longer something for you to deal with. Um, that God has made it his responsibility. That on the cross he's saying, he really is saying, let me take that from you. Give that to me. He's saying, like, I'm big enough to handle all of it. And he bears it, and he bears it away. And so, so we can say with the psalmist that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And all of that has happened. Like Jesus said, it's finished. It's already done. It's already done. And this is Advent. And so we also have to say, not yet. Like, we're still waiting for the fullness of this rescue. We wait for our king to return. We look forward to the day when sins and sorrows no longer grow, when thorns no longer infest the ground, 
when the blessings of Jesus really do flow far as the curse is found. And in the meantime, uh, we continue to suffer, don't we? Mm. Kurt Thompson says that for hope to form in the face of suffering, uh, that it has to be relational and feeling soothed and safe and secure. Like it can't be theoretical. Like it, it, it requires the courage of, of taking your suffering and sharing it with someone. Like risking being seen. Um, you know, Jesus promises to be with you in the face of suffering. But how do you experience his care? I mean, sometimes it can get a little abstract and theoretical. How do you experience the care of Jesus in your suffering? Well, probably in all kinds of ways. But, you know, one of the main ways is through his body, his people. Like, isn't it amazing that the New Testament says that we are the body of Christ? Like, that's one of the images it uses. And I wonder if that's not the truest of all the images. Like, that doesn't make sense. That's why I should stick to the script. I wonder if that's not, like, more than an image. I wonder if that's, if that, like, somehow, in some, again, mysterious way that you and I can't really understand. But, like, it's not just a metaphor. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Uh, and, and so one of the main ways that Jesus is with you in the face of your suffering is by a brother or sister in Christ being with you in the face of your suffering. Um, one, time, one of the ways that you experience the care of God in your suffering is by a brother or sister coming alongside you and caring for you. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, he he, he um calls us to comfort one another in our afflictions. Uh, someplace he says, again, didn't look this up. Sophie, <laughs> where, where does he say, weep with those who weep? I don't remember. Uh, but he says that. He says, weep with those who weep. And so uh, just over and over again, we're getting this invitation from the word of God um, for like to be deep enough in one another's lives that we actually know our places of suffering. And so this is like a really anticlimactic end to a sermon, but I just want to end with questions. Are you willing to know the suffering of others? Like to really know the suffering of others, like the suffering of people in this room maybe. Like are, is that something that you're willing um, to know, to come alongside, to, to take on, to make your own in some way, to share. Uh, not so that you can fix it, um, but so that you can bear it and share it as a part of the body of Christ. Can a suffering brother or sister feel seen with you and feel safe and secure enough with you to share their sufferings with you? Like, are you that kind of person? I think there's an invitation to grow there. I think that that's one of the ways that we'll ultimately grow in hope is by being people um, who know how to come alongside others and share their suffering. And, and here's maybe a more challenging question. 
Are you willing to be known in your suffering? You know, a lot of times what I've found to be true in my own life and what I know to be true in some of yours as you've shared it, and I imagine it's just kind of like a human reality, is that suffering so often brings shame because we feel inadequate to deal with it. We feel like there's something wrong with us. And so, so often suffering leads us not to share our suffering vulnerably with others, but to retreat, to hide, to cover up, to deny, to minimize. And I wonder, are you willing to be known in your suffering? Like, are you willing to risk the vulnerability of being known at that place of your deep hurt and longing? We need the Spirit's help for all of that. So uh, let me pray for us.